Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the Poli-Sci History Suite at Bethel University, Break the Glass, it's Election Shock Therapy. We We're back. finally back. <laughs> 2020 edition. <laughs> New decade. And when you Roaring say 2020, 20s. you really mean 2020. That's a big That's a big year for EST, right? It's a big year. Why yeah. is it a big year? Well, we got a presidential election coming up here. Yeah. I mean, this this podcast was was founded to deal with the 2016 election. And now we've we've made it. We've made it a full wow. cycle. We're coming up now to really, in earnest, yep. start dealing with the 2020 election. And uh, joining me today, uh, as you already heard a little bit of their voices, are... Andy Bramson. Matt Cookham, And Sam Mulberry. And I'm Who Chris Who is not Moore. in a meeting. Wow. It's exciting. Sam. Yeah, we're in interim right now. So interim, for those of you who are not uh, really familiar with Bethel, is a time in January where January is its own academic unit. People teach their own classes that are unique to January, and then the academic unit ends. Sam, what are you teaching in January? I am teaching a course that's not unique to January, Christianity and Western culture, but the format's unique. So, so yeah. you're teaching all of Christianity and Western culture in, in three and a half weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, are you just like, are your eyes blurry? A little bit, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, like I can't. I, I honestly, I think about things as they feel like a month ago, and it was like it was on. Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> so where are you yeah. at in the historical sweep of CWC? We are in the age of European enlightenment because we're getting right. towards the end of the course. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. Reread John Locke today if that makes you guys nice. happy. So. Yeah. It does make me happy. happy. Yeah. yeah. It's a good day. Uh, yeah. So for those of you who are not Bethel people, like CWC goes from the ancient Greeks up to basically the French Revolution. Right. So you're, dead <laughs> you're going through 2,200 years. Oh, yeah. 2,300 years. In three and a half weeks. And we don't skip anything. No. <laughs> yeah, it's good. You don't even have like a Bill and Ted uh, phone booth to help you get there. Although, let's be honest, the Middle Ages gets, you know, there's, so they're <laughs> like, and that on. 500 years happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We do our best. There was some black death. Think we got, they got over it. A lot of people died. It was bad. <laughs> it got better. On a, okay, guys, on a scale of uh, one to 10, with one being totally chill, 10 being completely freaked out. Um, the uh, virus coming out of Wuhan in China, um, the coronavirus. I'm a one. You're not not even worried at all. Because uh, of what can chill. I do? What can I yeah. do? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm basically there too. And, yeah. Okay. I mean, we had similar scares over what SARS and and some. Well, of the SARS other... was worthy of being scared about because mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah. multiple hundreds of people. Matt died. and I never got it. <laughs> but yes, you're well, right. I'm not sure that's how it works, but <laughs> I'm <I don't>. fine. <laughs> We're fine. I didn't know anyone who got it. Okay, that's so right. so you're not so none of no. you are at all. That, I, I'm going to put myself a little bit higher. I'm going to put myself at like. No, are you are you saying scared like for humanity or scared for ourselves personally? Yeah. I was thinking more humanity. Oh well, but, that's okay. different. Well, I'm saying one, one like like yeah. sure. like I'm not worried. I'm going like to make it come to Minnesota. today. No, yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. And I will say I did tell I did remind my son one extra time to keep his hands washed at the daycare today, but I, that's not like. His daycare does That's not. just quality parenting, though, right? Thank you. That's yeah. true. It's January. <laughs> That's right. a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, this is, uh, 
this is looking, at least initially, more like SARS yeah. and less like swine flu, which is to say it's likely that there are – China's reporting about 800 cases, but China tends to dramatically underreport these things for yeah. two reasons yep. that I can think of at least. Uh, one, their testing and, and record keeping is not great. No. And uh, two, they tend to want to underestimate the amount of disease spread. Right. Both for domestic reasons and for international reasons. Yep. But uh, they're reporting about 800 cases. Scientists are saying there should be more like 7,000, 6, 7,000 cases. And we've already seen um, a handful of, of confirmed deaths. There mm-hmm. is already one person in the United States that has that has come, uh, confirmed coronavirus mm-hmm. as well. What's going to be interesting more from a policy point of view yeah. is that we've never seen a city of basically 11 million people quarantined by yeah, shutting right. down mm-hmm. Um, the going and coming from a city. And so we're going to see if this sort of um, sort of emergency health policy is actually going to um, more or less contain this virus to keep yeah. it from the, yeah. the epidemic from really spreading. Yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, China can do this because it's an authoritarian government. They can just choose to just shut down a city. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting to see how well it's complied with. I mean, mm-hmm. Wuhan is a very big area, very populous. Mm-hmm. And even if the, I mean, it's unlikely they can really contain everybody. Right. right. Uh, right. So I'm interested to see how effective this is. Yeah. Uh, this but is, I mean, as with viruses, it's not about containing everyone. It's about keeping sort of a critical mass in one location so that you can't really spread right. at, a, at a level that keeps exponentially increasing outside of that area. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to take a quick break and let you pause to go wash your hands. <laughs> and we're back. And Donna And so uh, we've got uh, – I've got one other, little, one other little beef before we get into the heart of the matter today, guys. Ooh, and that okay. is, did you know that there are functionally two different celebrations of pi on the American calendar? Like the number that. pi? No. Oh, the food pie. So is pie day one of them? So today uh, is actually national pie. P-I-E day. Okay. Oh. A celebration of the confection, usually with fruit or cream mm-hmm. of some kind, baked into a crust. But we also have sort of the popularly recognized P-I day, which is March 14th, 3 one Which right. is sort of a holiday like May the 4th is a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. But all my friends who make a point of celebrating a day with pie do it on March 14th. And yet somehow on the national calendar, today is a celebration of P.I. So uh, just to be clear, your platform here is that we have too much celebration of pi in our I'm just saying let's be, let's be yeah. consistent. Let's just, just call one day pi Are day. you having too much pie in your life that you can't have another <laughs> day? I want to have everybody have pie at the same time. Like I don't want to have like con- conflicts of, of pie interest. It would be different if we were yeah. talking about every month had a pie day, and even that would probably be <laughs> okay. That, I'm not sure I'm, I'm a, like, objecting it, Okay, to. your complaint sounds like it's happening like three times in the same week. Like, yeah. like I think <laughs> we're talking about different months. I think we're okay. Yeah. You think? Yeah. yeah. All yeah. right. It's certainly, I mean, it's it's less of a tra- travesty than like sort of Valentine's Day and Sweetheart Day or something like that, right? So I've never heard um, of Sweetheart Day. Exactly. No, it's made up by Hallmark. Well, so is um, Valentine's Day. Well, <laughs> yes. at least it has some basis. <laughs> Valentine's Day and Sweetheart Day is um, only a problem if they're going yeah. to separate people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's another issue. But um, I'm, I'm now feeling bad that I didn't make pie for dessert tonight. I made brownies. Day stuff. ain't over yet, Andy. Uh, well, <laughs> see, I, was, I actually debated like pie or brownies, pie or brownies. I decided on the brownies and now I feel like I should have made Pie. Yeah. Um, so, do you all know what the pie capital of Minnesota is? I'm about to. 
Braham, Minnesota. This was signed into law by the. Um, is Braham gov- different than Bram? Maybe it's maybe it's Bram. Okay, okay. you're you're is the actual Minnesotan, so it's B R A H A M. So yeah, is that Bram. Bram? Bram okay. Yeah. Um, I've never actually heard a local say it, so good. (laughs) Thank you for correcting that. Um, Bram is very small. It's small. It's like a 1,000 people. Um, They have the pie capital of Minnesota. They have this little cafe that sells pie, and it was a popular stopping over point for people going from the cities to the North Shore. And so in 1990, Governor Perpich signed it into law as the pie capital. And every year on the first, I think it's the first Friday of August, they have um, a pie day there. Um, so to exacerbate this pie problem <laughs> that Chris is concerned about, um, you can go and you can buy pie like right there in the town square, essentially. Arguably, though, in the pie capital in the pie capital of Minnesota, isn't every day pie day? Yeah, well, yeah every day is pie day, and you can go to that restaurant. But on this day, they are like selling it. They outdoors. really, they really they mean bake it. them. They yeah. like the churches. We ain't messing around. They use the churches to bake pies in, and then they sell it. And it's, I mean, we went once because I felt like we should do this. And so I dragged I wonder how you had all and this was, knowledge of pie. It was pie. okay. It was, it was wow. not amazing. Shots fired. Yeah, it was not amazing. Like, I was like, this is fine. I'll let you know it's... half of our listenership is from Bram, Minnesota. So. <laughs> yeah, if this, if this podcast. Just a hotbed of pie in politics. That's right. Yeah. That would be great if we had, like, a concentration of listeners there. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. I love the idea actually now that I of of, of pie and politics. Yeah. yeah. Just, you know, it actually it, sounds very Iowa, doesn't it? Yeah. Totally. Oh, yeah. very much. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Well, you know what kind of pie I wish I had today, guys? What kind of pie do you wish? A little, little peach mint pie. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. I'm actually a dad. I can make dad jokes. Um, yeah, that's true. That's so true. the the story dominating do. Washington DC right now. Uh, Dr. Kukum is uh, is the impeachment of one Donald John Trump and uh, the relative farcical nature of said event. I want to not talk about whether we think impeachment is a good idea or whether impeachment's a bad idea. We're going to leave that to the pundits. Mm-hmm. What we want to talk about on this podcast is what the effects of impeachment are. Yeah. So as political scientists, what we can add to this is by saying. Now that we're in the process of impeaching, ha- having impeached a president, going through an impeachment trial to c- determine whether or not Donald Trump will be removed from office, what does this mean for people mm-hmm. like Donald Trump? What does this mean for, for Senate Republicans? What does this mean for the Republican Party? What does this mean for the Democrats in the Senate? What does this mean for the Democratic candidates running for president? So let's start with the president himself. Guys, Donald Trump has been impeached. He is almost certainly going to be acquitted mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the Senate trial. What does this mean for him? Well, there's what he thinks it means for him, and then there's what <laughs> it actually means for him. The former is probably a little more clear than the latter. So we don't know exactly how impeachment is going to affect um, how people are going to vote um, next November. Um, mm-hmm. Currently, a small majority of people favor um, Trump being removed from office. It remains to be seen whether or not um, an eventual acquittal, which is likely how it's going to go, if that's going to sort of make the issue go away for a lot of voters. We'll, we'll see. Donald Trump sees this as an opportunity for him to be vindicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that in the sorts of arguments that um, his sort of legal team um, is um, is fronting, both in the um, the the briefs that they have released and the arguments that we'll be hearing from them, um, I guess, starting 
uh, Saturday or maybe next week at this point. And basically, they are giving absolutely no ground. They are saying that Trump didn't do anything wrong whatsoever. It was a perfect phone call. Yeah. Right? It, yep. Yeah. And so so basically, they are almost treating this as sort of um, um, just complete, total exoneration uh, right. for Trump. And we're not going to get into um, – Exactly. If that's the case or not, um, some of the arguments they're making are, are certainly uh, problematic, um, as are arguments on the other side. But, but I guess what do you the, mean the by point. That? Well, I mean, so perhaps the most problematic argument that the Trump team is fronting is that an actual crime has to be committed right. um, for um, to, to, for it to actually be an impeachable offense, uh, which is clearly not true. Right. Um, the Constitution is pretty vague on that matter. It's it's not necessarily um, a legal crime that has to be committed. And so but but that's the argument that they're making. Um, and they're using that to sort of set this high threshold and say, like, well, Trump didn't even reach that. And so he's completely exonerated. So that's the argument he's making. Um, whether or not um, that's really going to matter at the end of the day r- remains to be seen. Yeah. In terms of where this goes, I mean, I, I'll, I'll speculate just a little here. I mean, I think um, I'm, I'm not convinced it hurts him very much, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think he, already the president does not have high approval ratings. Um, he's pretty low, in fact, for somebody at this point in his first term with an economy like it is, right, which is doing very well. Um, so you know, I, in that sense, I don't think he's – I don't think it hurts him. And if anything, maybe it fires up his base. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's what you're getting. The people are saying, you know, they buy this sort of, you know, he's – being unjustly kind of persecuted, right? Um, these people have it, have had it out for him since day one. It's the end of a three-year, you know, sort of um, kind of vengeance-seeking, right? As I saw some headline along those lines, right? Um, and so I think it's, you know, that you get that kind of narrative, and maybe that helps him fire up his face. Um, so, you know, if I had to speculate, I would say I don't think it hurts him much. I think the people who are, uh, you know, really fired up about this probably already weren't big fans or weren't fans at all. Um, and his base might be excited. I don't know that it you know makes him win in 2020, but I think it's, it's probably not. Yeah, I mean, and the polling really bears that out too, because if you yeah. look at the polling um, over the past three months, what people think about impeachment, there's really not been a whole lot of movement. Um, and if any, the, the main movement has been that Republicans have become more firm in their support mm-hmm. and Democrats have become right. more firm um, huge in gap. supporting, um, yep. removing him from office um, yep. and independents are still parked in the middle. So yep. there's not been a whole lot of fluctuation on that. And I don't unless there's some huge revelation, perhaps if there's additional witnesses called. But barring that, I don't see mm-hmm. I don't see this um, having a, a huge impact on public opinion, maybe in the margins with independence. And maybe that'll matter in certain swing states. But yep. who knows how that's yep. going to go? OK, how about then for other Republicans, um, Republican senators primarily is what I'm thinking of here, but mm-hmm. other Republican office seekers. Uh, does the impeachment of the president impact them in 2020? It it could. I mean, I think the you know people I I would think about here particularly are people who are in swing states or states that didn't you know go for the president. So people like you know Senator Gardner from Colorado, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who you know are in a tough spot because on the one hand you have to hold your base. The base, as Matt just said, clearly is not abandoning the president on this issue. Um, and so he will probably end up voting against impeachment. But could that hurt him with swing voters? Yeah, it could. I mean, it could be he's seen as too much of a lackey of the president. And in a state like Colorado, that might matter. I mean, you know, Gardner won pretty narrowly in 2014, which was a very good year for Republicans. Uh, I doubt 2020 will be quite as good in Colorado for them. Um, so that's that's tight. I mean, I think that puts him in a tough 
a tough spot. My guess is they are going to mostly, if not wholly, make the the decision to just come home and vote for the president. But is that also is that the same we'll way see. Susan Collins will deal with this? Yeah, I mean Susan Collins is a I don't know that that I I wouldn't be shocked to see her vote against. I mean, vote for impeachment, but I I don't think she will in the end. I think she'll vote against it. Um, I think she has more. I think she has more leeway than Cory Gardner. She's been reelected a number of times in Maine. She's clearly somebody who's she's more moderate. Um, she's a good fit for that state. I mean, she could lose in twenty twenty, but I think she's got a, a a little more leeway than he does. Yeah, and I think what what you see is um, perhaps one of the main things the the Democrats want to get out of the impeachment process at this point is to basically make life really hard for these Republicans mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. on the rocks, right? Because, I mean, let's face it, um, yeah. the the results are, well, to use a, a pie pun, are baked in, right? <laughs> um, we, we know, um, again, barring some new information coming out, yeah. we know, and that puts sufficient pressure on enough Republicans, we mm-hmm. know Trump is mm-hmm. probably going to be um, sort of acquitted. Right. Um, at least right. he's not going to be removed from office. And so Absolutely. Democrats know that, Republicans know that. And so mm-hmm. what's the whole point of going through this process? The point is to um, make it look like, for the Democrats, is to make it look like the Republicans are not wanting to hold a fair trial. They're not wanting to call witnesses. They're not wanting to subpoena documents. And so that's why you have the Senate Minority Leader, um, Chuck Schumer, back on Tuesday when they were debating the rules about how mm-hmm. this whole mm-hmm. Senate trial would proceed, brought up a number of different amendments to the rules that were proposed by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Right. Um, and these amendments were to allow or to guarantee witnesses or to subpoena documents. And every time this uh, these amendments were defeated, which required Republicans to go on the record once again right. that they were not supporting um, these rule changes that would ostensibly um, make the Senate trial appear more fair. And so I think the idea is Democrats want to be able to sort of stick this to Republican senators and say, hey, they weren't really interested in a fair trial. And and that's ultimately what they're hoping to get out of this, mm-hmm. in addition to damaging Donald Trump as much as they possibly can. Yep. It's it's always interesting. I mean, like with these kind of votes, right? Like there's the short run calculation, which is what we've been talking about. And then like, where is this going to go down the road? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so, for example, I mean, like when you think back to the, the Clinton crime bill, right, in the 90s, yes. I mean, this seemed like. Yeah, here's here's this Democrat who's trying to attack toward the center, be a kind of new kind of Democrat. Um, this seems like a you know it's an idea coming out of the White House from a group that's you know obviously got the support of the African American community by and large, right? Um, pretty safe vote, you would think, right? In some ways, you're supporting your own president, and yet this has come back to bite people like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, who wasn't voting on it, but was obviously closely associated with it. Um, and it's been a li- at least a little bit of a concern with them. Um, and so you just never know, like, I mean, where does this go down the road, right? And, and in that sense, Schumer maybe is trying to sow some seeds for, mm-hmm. you know, of, you know, some, from some bad things for Republicans um, later on. Um, we'll see if it works. Let me ask you another question there, Andy. So uh, the, the likelihood that Trump is acquitted in this impeachment process is extremely high. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to see what could Let's, change that would not lead to that result. Right. Almost to this point. We will uh, Senate Democrats campaign upon the injustice of that acquittal after it happens. Will this become a campaign issue for re-election? That's a good question. I I would say I think it'd be foolish to do that. I think you need to focus on other things um, besides that. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so the question is: Are the the Democratic 
candidates for president going to run on that versus the senators, right? So there might be different strategies there. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. Good point. So um, I don't know if the Democratic right. pr- candidates for president would make right. that a big issue. The senators, maybe, um, because it's more cl- it's more directly related to the Senate. So you could see some Democratic um, opponents right. or challengers may- against vulnerable Republicans making that argument. Right. Um, so I could I wouldn't rule that out. Yeah, I think it would be, it's more like a it's, think about it as a resume kind of thing, right? Like right. if you're trying to ding somebody for being too much of a loyalist to this president, right? A, mm-hmm. a Cory Gardner, for example, right? I'll pick on him again. Um, this is part of that narrative you're weaving, right? Like look at this guy. He cannot, you know, he cannot act as an independent voice for Colorado um, because, you know, he's just in the tank for Donald Trump. And this is one of the points you bring up. If your whole campaign is focused on that, that would be a mistake. If that's one of the parts of your narrative. Yeah, that works. And especially okay. if your your state was majority in support of impeachment, right? That's a point you probably do want to bring up. But I think it's sort of selective in those particular races, not a kind of big scale issue. Okay, that's fair. One last question on the mm-hmm. on this side, and then I want to turn to one more, uh, one more thing. Um, is uh, um, is this an inoculation for mm-hmm. Donald Trump's second term? What yeah. I mean by that is. Yeah. If Donald Trump is acquitted here, and it certainly seems like he's going to be, yep. is he then really, truly bulletproof if he wins re-election? This is where I do wonder if this is a mistake. I mean, well, I think this might well be a big mistake by the Democrats in pursuing this right here and now when they don't have clearly don't have support to get it through. Is I don't think it makes it impossible to impeach him a second time. It makes it really hard because then it's mm-hmm. like, why are you doing this again? So something which which he you would nearly have to commit a capital crime. He would have to shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Right. I mean, or something shocking and new. Right. I mean, you, what you cannot do, I think, is come back to anything that's happened from 2017 to 2019 and say that's cause for impeachment. Um, because I feel like we we do know the the facts about this stuff, and you didn't bring impeachment articles, or those impeachment articles were shot down. It's just mm-hmm. it's hard to see how do you bring that back in and have people take it seriously unless you have a two thirds Democratic majority, which is not happening. So, yeah, I mean, I kind of think it to some extent. I mean, I think I think the, the impeachment weapon is rendered far less powerful by yeah. how it was used. Yep. Yep. I agree. It's possible that if Democrats had not been talking about impeachment since before he was actually sworn in, yep. I think I made this point before, and yeah. it actually you know conducted this process in a in a in a sort of fair, reasonable, open-minded way, and we're trying to truly persuade Americans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that this could have dinged him enough. But the way that they basically conducted it um, not only caused most Americans to think this was a merely partisan exercise, but it also provided cover for Republicans in both the House and the Senate who might have been open to actually Mm -hmm. supporting impeachment in the House and maybe even removal in the Senate. Um, But they provided Mm -hmm. cover because instead of the Republicans having to actually argue about the substance of the issues, they can complain about the process and how the process has been partisan and unfair, which there's some real truth to that, right? But Mm -hmm. that's the cover that they provided. And so the way impeachment has been conducted, um, I think, is is going to remove that weapon from being used in the future and probably doesn't harm Trump as much as it could have otherwise. Yeah. One last thing on this before we change uh, topics a little bit, and that is uh, one of the reasons what we've talked about in this uh, this podcast for why uh, this is such a foregone conclusion is that um, it's party polarization. Yeah. And there's some recent new evidence to suggest just how stark that party polarization is. Yep. 
uh, Gallup just released a poll uh, looking at gaps in Democratic versus Republican approval of the president from 1945 to 1920. Or for 2020, sorry. Yeah, or 20, yeah, uh, yeah. 19. And so within mm-hmm. that time frame, since 45 till now, the uh, years, all the years with the biggest gap between what Republicans think of the president and what Democrats think of the president, regardless of who the president is, um, all occurred since 2005. Right. And we're currently in the year with the biggest gap. So yeah. currently, among, uh, average across this year, Republicans displayed a 89% approval rating of Donald Trump. Democrats approved, uh, had a 7% rating. Yeah. The only, the next That was an 82-point gap. Yep. Last year was a 79-point gap. That was good enough to finish second. Uh, the this third and fourth place years were Obama years, yep. where it just flips, right? Twelve uh, percent of Republicans approved, eighty nine percent of Democrats approved, seventy seven uh, percent in the seventy seven point gap in sixteen to seventeen, and a, a seventy six point gap in twelve to thirteen, and then you get a George W. Bush year. Yep. But all the most recent years um, are yeah. are these huge gaps between what Republicans and Democrats think of the president. Now, I want to be clear here: right. this isn't the American population in general. These are people who identify themselves as Republicans, as sure. Democrats. Does doesn't include independents, right. or doesn't include people who are leaning Republican or leaning mm-hmm. Democrat. It's just people who are strongly identify with one of those two parties. So there is a little bit of there's there's wiggle room in the middle, mm-hmm. and there's something still worth fighting over in the middle here. Yep. But this is really stark, and it yeah. really shows a change in the American the structure of American politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Polarization yeah. has entered the tribalism phase. Yeah, you I mean, say. Yeah. So what's the next phase after tribalism? <laughs> War? I don't know. That is the first thing. There, there, are people, there are people who speculate about, uh, you know, a civil war. Um, yeah. Is that? I think that's probably unlikely. But <laughs> but it, do it, aren't we reassuring? Is there a? Um, <laughs> yeah. If it's not civil war, what other kinds of things could break up that level of sharp tribalism? That sharp uh, polarization. A national, uh, a world war could possibly do that. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it is not clear where you go from here. Like it does, it does remind me of the civil war era, but the big difference is of course that we're not, you know, this, this divide is not neatly sorted geographically in the right. way that we were um, in that, in that era. Right. I mean, it's, it's much more rural urban. It's much more rural or urban and, and there are, you know, whole States that are, you know, much more one way or the other, but, the, but there's always like this, you know, whatever state you're talking about, no matter how you know conservative or liberal it is, right? There's a significant minority um, that is from the other mm-hmm. the other party, right? I mean, so Massachusetts, you think of as a really liberal state, or Utah is really conservative, but they still have you know twenty to thirty percent of the population that. I would you say know, twenty to thirty people? No, no, yeah, more than that. <laughs> uh, twenty to thirty percent of the population that you know identifies sure. with that, the other yeah. party. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think the only I, my my clearest way out of this. Uh, is not civil war, not Good. world war, Ooh. which Ooh. I'm glad for, but yeah, it's yeah. probably demographic shifts yeah. that lead to uh, just a prolonged period of inferiority of one of the two parties. Right. If um, if Republican dreams come true and they hold on to the Electoral College and the House and the Senate uh, and the presidency for long periods of time and the Democratic sort of voter base breaks up because a whole bunch of uh, new Hispanic Americans swing over the Republican Party right. for social value reasons, then I think you could really see a fraction of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and sort of a remaking of the American political selectorate. 
if it's the other way around and Amer- the Republic, the graying Republican Party right. is predominantly white, can't keep up with an increasingly uh, diverse, yep. uh, multi-national or uh, multi-ethnic Democratic Party, then the Republican Party will die and have to reform itself in some kind of way. That's the only way I think you. See, I see my way, see your way out of this sort of sharp polarization at this point. Certainly, yeah. the sooner the Republican Party sheds Trump, the sooner they can expand their coalition. Right. Um, yeah. And we'll see how quickly they're able to make that adjustment after Trump is mm-hmm. gone, whether that's in a year or whether that's uh, in, in five years. Unless, be- yeah. unless if Trumpism becomes, becomes successful. Right. And right. not only does he win re-election, but the person that follows after him is someone who adopts many of his platforms and ideas right. and even persona uh, so that uh, because it worked. And there's some mm-hmm. indication, I mean, that, that that could happen, right? I mean, like he could be – I mean this in a very particular way. He could be the next Reagan for the Republican Party. Not that he's like Reagan, right? But that, you know, for for the next couple decades, really, after and more after Reagan left office, it felt like every Republican was framing himself or herself in terms of Reagan. Right? Well, even and, Trump has done that. Uh, and even right? Trump has done that, right? But he has clearly moved in a different here's, direction. Here's why I'm less concerned could, about that. He could or, be the shaper. I shouldn't say concerned, but I think it's less likely for for Trump. Trump is himself self-repudiating as an image bearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he really says, I alone can fix yep. this, right? Yep. And he yep. says, you know, I, I am a one of one. And so yep. the ability of someone else to come along and say, I'm just like Trump comes with its own seeds yep. of, of self-denial. It's So the, I'll make an international analogy here um, because the one of the cases that Trump reminds me of is Juan Peron. In uh, I thought you were going there. Um, okay. So Juan explain Peron, why you So Juan Peron was the um, president of Argentina. He kind of came elected right after the end of a military dictatorship. He served for nine years, got kicked out by the military, um, who then kept trying to return the country to democracy but refused to let Peron return. People wanted Peron. Um, and so it was a whole mess. And eventually they let Peron come back one more time and then he died. Um, <laughs> but after that, I mean, like ever since, really, um, Argentine politics has been dominated by the memory of Peron. Um, and you still have the Peronist Party. They're called the Justicialist Party, but they're the Peronist Party. Um, and what's weird about them is they're, they're not clear, like, where do they position themselves on the right-left continuum, right? They've mm. had presidents who've been pretty far to the right uh, on, you know, their policies. Um, they've had presidents who are pretty far to the left. And they all claim to be Peronist, right, um, and to be sort of following up on the legacy of Juan Peron. And so it's – I wonder if Trump could become that, right? Trumpism could become that, mm-hmm. where it's, yeah. it's, it's this empty vessel – and everyone fills it with whatever they want. And Peron did say very similar things about himself. I mean, like he referred to himself as the conductor, right? So this analogy of like, you know, there's an orchestra and I'm the only one who can get them all to play together, right? Because this, my party contains the right, it contains the left, it contains all these different groups. Mm-hmm. And what are they united around? Not a policy, not an ideology, me, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's that I alone can fix it kind of mm-hmm. mentality. Um, so once that's gone, I mean, either it collapses and just goes away or becomes this kind of – thing that ambitious politicians of all stripes can use for their own purposes yeah. and say, I'm following in the legacy of Donald Trump because I'm doing this thing mm-hmm. or I'm doing that thing. And those things could be very different. So we'll see. I think the the, the right way to brand that, if, if someone was going to, speaking sort of like a political psychology sort of mm-hmm. thing here, if someone was going to come along after Trump and want to appropriate some of his nationalism, some of his populism, yep. is to say, well, I am, I'm, I'm Trump without the negative, without the yeah. downsides. Yeah, without the Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, right. um, I mean, Trump has, I mean, obviously his personality has a lot to do with why he's had a certain level of success amongst mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. a, a large group of people, yep. but it's also the frustration and fears that yeah. he's tapped yeah. into. And that's not going to go away. Right. If right. anything, that's gotten worse over the past three years. Um, and there's every reason yep. to believe that's going to continue. And someone with a certain savvy, yeah. maybe not uh, Trump's crassness, but a certain savvy can tap into that and make use of that from either party. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and so it remains to be, and, and I think it's really going to come down to who is a presidential candidate going to be for the Republicans next time around? Right. Um, and who is it going to be for the Democrats? Because we know presidential candidates shape the direction that their parties go. Right. And so if you get another Trumpy sort of person coming in who has that sort of populist, yep. you know, stick it to the elites sort of strategy, I mean, mm-hmm. you could see these sorts of approaches continue. Yeah. And obviously all that's much, much more plausible if Trump wins re-election, right? If right. he were to somehow lose in 2020, then it becomes much more likely that the Republicans move in a different direction and say, well, okay, we won one fluke victory in 16, but then it blew up in our faces in 2020. Even though we had a strong economy, we need to think about how we approach this in different ways, right? So I think that that's hugely important for kind of what the narrative is about Trump. Going oh, I forward. completely agree. And we're going to have lots of time in this podcast oh, yeah. to look ahead at like, the likelihood that Trump yep. wins re-election. Yep. Uh, you know, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll be at this till November of oh, next yeah. year. Oh, November of this year. It's a long Buckle but, in, everybody. But it's for now, our, our, our nation turns its lonely eyes to Iowa. Yeah. So we're about to kick off in earnest the presidential primary <laughs> season. It feels like we've already had people running for president for the last two years because we have. Uh-huh. Uh, but we're looking at you, John Delaney. <laughs> all of it, like all of it has been preseason up yep. until this point. We're about to start the regular season of the primaries, <laughs> and that starts in Iowa. And like lots of things in Iowa, it's a little bit weird. So, <laughs> hi, friends in Iowa. <laughs> Uh, tell uh, one of you, I can't remember which one of you, one of you promised to give us just a little brief explainer on how the Iowa caucuses work. All right. American, Guys, American what, is, what, what is a caucus? <laughs> Sounds like something you scraped off your teeth. No, that's weird. Tar- caucus is um, raucous. That's the main thing you oh, have to, that was really lame. It really that's, is. So, of course, like most idea. states um, have what's called a primary, right? And this is basically um, mm-hmm. where you go and decide you're going to vote for um, particular candidates to be the nominee um, um, for your party, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. but Iowa is a little bit different. Um, when <laughs> Iowans go to choose the nominee for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, they don't go vote in a polling booth. Um, they oh, get together no. in rooms, um, and there are various precincts of which there are, you know, thousands across the plains of Iowa, and they gather together and they basically talk amongst themselves about who they're going to support and divide themselves into different sides of the room based off of Picture this happening in a high school gymnasium. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. High school gymnasiums, community senators. Yeah. Are there actually flags? No, I don't know. Oh, okay. I've never never caucused in Iowa. Right. And so um, so caucus, so the the strategy that candidates have um, going going into Iowa isn't merely about um, just getting people to like you. It's getting people to, to buy in enough so that they show up at the, the caucus location mm-hmm. um, and support you and try to convince other people other people to to join in support for you know your favorite candidate and so people gather in these rooms and and they basically hold a conversation they hold a vote um, in several stages so if we were in Iowa and we were participating in this what mm-hmm. kind of time commitment are we talking about and I do mean this is a serious question yeah, like no, if I go vote in a primary not... I maybe have to wait in a line I fill out a ballot and I go like 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 I presume there's a bunch of people who don't bother because this sounds time intensive. It's your evening. Well, 
It's it's interesting. So yeah. it does require a few hours of, yeah. of commitment. Um, but Iowa, because they have had this privileged position of of being the first, right, um, to ha- to weigh yeah. in on sort of who the, the nominee is going to be for the two parties, um, they actually take this job really really seriously. Yeah. Um, it, it's like a state sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all the candidates, you know, they spend you know a year or two going to Iowa, and and people actually like go out to these events and yeah. and try to feel out. Um, the candidates, um, and they talk to the news media about them. So they actually take this role pretty seriously. Um, and so, yeah, not everyone participates in a caucus, but a lot of them are really into it. Yeah. Um, this is a question which is going to sound frivolous, but I really don't mean it that way. <laughs> like, as Annie said, this is your evening. Like, what is the snack situation like? Like, is there That's food? Really good I was wondering I that, that too. Like, if I'm going to go to something for a whole evening and I'm actually there, giving something. There better be lemon bars. Yeah, like, is it... <laughs> Maybe this is not a question for you, Matt, but I'm actually, if anybody in Iowa is listening, I'm actually really (laughs) curious about this and not for frivolous reasons, but for like, you know, this are the people of Bram called in to supply pie. Right, right. I mean, or, or just like, like, how does that work? Do, do the, I presume the campaigns can't provide snacks, but like, like does the <laughs> right. precinct? Because then are you voting for like Bernie's brownies? Right. <laughs> you know Bernie's brownies <laughs> got pot in them. Bernie's you know brownies they do. <laughs> and yep. there's a little buzz. <laughs> Feel the burn. <laughs> That's an excellent question. Wow. I don't know because okay. I don't know anything about Midwest. It doesn't come up in the political so. science literature much, okay. but it's um, wow, it's it a really like, important question. It feels like there is a gap in your field, in no, your maybe, discipline right Matt, here. Matt, maybe what you and I need to do for a research project next, like two weeks from now is go We should travel down to Iowa. And just sort of see how many of those places we can hit and like yeah. scope out the snack situation. Because – That would be a great Instagram account. I would, I would follow that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Because here's the thing, like depending on what, what kind of candidate, you could send all kinds of really interesting signals. Yeah. If the ca- if the sna- if the snacks were coming from people f- affiliated yeah. with the campaign, right? right? You know, if you want to just remind yeah. people that if, if Julian Castro was still running, and you want to just <laughs> really remind, like you could, you could have churros, like you mean, like you could yeah. have, um, yeah. you know, like and, and obviously you want to avoid certain pitfalls, yeah, yeah. like you definitely wouldn't want to have like straight up like packaged Hostess <laughs> snacks if you're anti corporate, like, right, 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 right. You, you need we need to be holding. Could you imagine though if like, uh, like if like. 250 people at Center City, Iowa, like all got food poisoning because somebody didn't like <laughs> properly cook some kind of egg bake or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm... I feel like Biden's the Swiss cake roll candidate. But um, so. <laughs> By the way, I am pro Swiss cake roll. Oh, so. yeah. Me too. I mean, okay. like, but, but they just right. feel like. Good and like, well you know, after their because, expiration Because date. he wraps yeah. together they're black corporate, and white They're old. And... They've been around for a long time, right? It's like, the same. They're, you they're safely wrapped. You know what you're getting. <laughs> Could you imagine if he had Werther's? You know, what's that? If you just had Werther's. Werther's. Oh, man. So um, if I can actually, though, re- leave the snack. Please do. I am sorry for derailing your no, wonderful I mean, party. I really, I really love it. But I, I do actually want to come back to one of the things that you two were talking about, Sam and Matt, um, because I think your question is actually really important, Sam. I mean, like, it is a big time commitment. And one of the things concerns this raises is who is willing to put in that time commitment, right? And so um, one thing that makes Iowa always a little weird too, right, is that you'll get these this polling, right, saying like people support, you know, Bernie at this level and Biden at that level and Warren at that level, right? Um, but then it's a question of who turns out for a cold evening in early February, right, to hang out with the community and caucus, right? 
And of course, some people are more likely to do that than others, particularly mm-hmm. older people are more likely, mm-hmm. right? If you are a 70-year-old retiree in Iowa, I mean, like, really, what else have you got going that day, right? Like, that's the thing. That's your event. You've <laughs> been looking Iowa. forward to this. Wow. You've been thinking about it. You've met five of the presidential candidates, if not all of them, right? Um, you're going to turn out. If you're a 21-year-old college student, you're three weeks into the semester, right? Are you going to really turn out or are you going to say, you know, like, I got a paper, um, I really ought to do the 30 pages of reading or I really want to just play video games rather than doing the 30 pages of reading, probably more likely, right? Um, but, you know, wh- what kind of people are going to turn out, right? And so that's a concern because, of course, some of these candidates are more likely to be supported by older people. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, Bernie is often supported by younger folks. That makes it a concern for the Sanders campaign. Will his people actually turn out? Um, you can count on probably Biden's people turning out because they tend to be disproportionately yeah. older. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kind of people we would expect to be there. But the but the flip side of that is Bernie's been in Iowa before. He's got yep. the ground yep. game down, he does. right? Um, he does. And his he people are does. used to getting out and doing um, yep. that sort of having that yep. sort of commitment. You yep. know, Biden yep. yeah. and his people maybe not so much. So so, so, so we'll, and maybe you're that. starting to answer my next question, which is: Are there people who are particularly well positioned for Iowa? That may not be for other places necessarily. Maybe, maybe not. But but Iowa in particular, because of this unique system of doing it, um, that they're a better fit. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned Biden as I th- I think, one example of that. Yeah. So I think Bernie, I mean, does have a good ground game there. I think that's important. He's done this before. That's important. Um, you would expect, obviously, Klobuchar just to have a good connection because it's neighboring sure. state. There's some, some crossover there um, in terms of sort of her ability to talk about issues. Um, Warren's been deeply invested. So, I mean, like, I think, you know, they've all positioned themselves well. Okay. The top five have all positioned themselves pretty well. So do you well. think that kind of we'll ne- those advantages get neutralized because of the – I think so. I just think the turnout question is still okay. there, right? Sure. Like, I mean, will Bernie's college base turn out, right, um, and the younger base turn out? Uh, because traditionally they're the kind of people you're less likely to see out on a cold night in February. So right? because these top five candidates um, – and that's a weird way to say it because yep. the top four really are – but Klobuchar is disproportionately strong in Iowa, right? Right. Compared so to other places. We're basically saying it's Buttigieg, Biden, Bernie, Warren, and Klobuchar. Yep. Amongst those five, uh, is there significant penalty to finishing fourth or fifth in Iowa? Yeah. That's a good question. Actually, before we tackle that, can we just go back to the caucuses? Because we didn't quite finish that that description. Oh, sure. Why not? Um, and <laughs> so, I mean, like Matt was saying, you know, they ever caucuses you kind of line up in these groups but what the other weird thing right matt correct me if i'm wrong on the details here but um is then whoever doesn't end up in a group that constitutes at least 15 percent of the room mm-hmm. right they have to then go join another group right they have right. to go join so for example if you're caucusing for klobuchar and she only ends up at 10 percent, right um, in, in your district in your district right not across the state in your gymnasium right where you're voting um then you the klobuchar group has to disband and they have to go find somebody who is popular enough, right? At, at an individual yeah, level. They don't have to move as a group. Right. No, no, they don't have to go together as a group. Absolutely. So right. some of them might go to Biden. Some might go to Sanders. Some might go to Warren, right? Some might go to Buttigieg. But ultimately, everybody has to end up in a group that constitutes at least 15% of the voters in that particular precinct who have shown up. An- another dumb question. You could also just leave, right? If you're like, oh, my candidate, like. I suppose you could. I mean, like, I obviously, once do, you're but, invested to, yeah, to be there, but, right, but like, right. okay, so they're, okay. I mean, I guess, yeah, if you looked and said, okay, Buttigieg, Biden, and Warren, I don't care. I don't like any of them. I'm just going to walk out the door. I guess you could do that. Okay. Andrew Yang's um, not getting this fine but, about here. But if you, <laughs> generally, you would have some 
preference. And sure. these are, I mean, like, again, mostly these are going to be people and your who are voice Democrats. Be, you'd be silencing you care about these yourself. People. Right. You'd be silencing yourself. And so if you have any preference between the, among the remaining people, then it's in your interest to say, well, fine, I'm not a big Buttigieg fan, but I prefer him to Biden. Sure. Right. right. Okay. So what's, what becomes important for these sort of lower tier candidates yep. is, um, and for the people that support them, is what their second choice is, who yeah. their second choice is. Sure. Yeah. So, yep. and if this makes intuitive sense to you, uh, good listeners, this idea of voting for your first choice and when they're no longer viable, then going to your second choice and then potentially, if they're no longer viable, going to your third choice uh, is an example of ranked choice voting. Yeah, it kind of is. Um, and what's weird this year is – so this is one of the things that, that we should say before we get to your question, Chris, about you know sort of the penalties of finishing fourth and fifth in Iowa um, is – Iowa in the, traditionally has just reported a couple numbers. So one is how many votes did the person get, you know, statewide? And that's, you know, who ended up in those 15% plus groups, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, what were the number of votes in each of those, right? And they've reported that for the statewide. And then, of course, they report how many delegates, right? What does this mean for how many delegates Bernie gets and Biden gets and so forth, right? Yeah, Iowa doesn't have that um, many delegates. And they don't have that many delegates. It's not a big delegate prize, right? No, so are, it's more are, about the momentum. Are but, the delegates the same – in number as the electoral delegates, or is it a different? Oh no, system? it's more than that. Yeah, it's okay. more, than more than the electoral okay. college. Yeah, it's the number that, and I forget the number for for Iowa, but um, it's the number that the delegates they get for the Democratic convention. Right, right. I just didn't know how yeah. that was. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but the other weird thing this year is, so they're not only going to report the number of delegates each candidate gets and the number of um, votes that they got in those fifteen percent plus groups. They're also going to report the number of initial votes. So they're also going to count, apparently, so, th so they're saying, um, how many people voted um, for each candidate in their first preference, right? Interesting. Um, and so there's going to be multiple numbers coming out, which is interesting because it could mean that you get different kind of narratives about who won, right? Like which number is most important? I mean, because again, as Matt said, the delegate prize value was insignificant, right? It's n it doesn't, I mean, it's not going to get you very far, right? Um, it's not nothing, yeah. but it's not, can, can, it's not big. Just to, to clarify, so you said 41, 41 delegates. How many delegates does it take to win the nomination? Like a at the, It's around 1,000, right? I think. It's it's pretty far up. Okay, there, so, yeah. like, so it really is a yeah. very small it's number. A very okay, small yeah, drop in the bucket. Yeah. This is all about narrative. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's all about the momentum. So so I think, you know, that's going to be interesting to see, like, do we get one clear, like, this is the winner of Iowa? Or do we get two or three people saying, like, well, I won the delegates. I won the most votes. I won the most first choice votes, right? Like, right. Yeah. Uh, and that would be – that could be interesting if you got two or three people who are so, sort of – So presumably that and first – And even kickstart a, a lower-level campaign. Like, if Andrew yeah. Yang gets 14 percent on the first ballot, yeah. and then all of his, yeah. he has to redistribute all of his potential – voters, yeah. he can say, well, still, I got 14% in Iowa. People want it. Yeah. yeah. So, or converse, so, or so, sorry, go ahead. Okay. So that the, the first choice votes gives us something more like a primary number, right? Because right. that would right. be your exactly. vote. Okay. That's exactly. That's what would be happening right. in a case where you had a primary mm -hmm. because that's, okay. then you would just go home. Right? Gotcha. gotcha. Um, absolutely. I think what you'll see is, you know, whoever the, you know, the winner is, Probably Biden. That's what the polling indicates now, but perhaps not. Um, that you know, some of that number is going to be people who you know switch their votes, right? Who who preferred someone else, but when they didn't right. meet the fifteen percent threshold, you know, end up voting for the person who ends up winning the plurality of votes, right? Um, which eats into their total, right? Like, because yeah. then the narrative isn't like, well, you know, Biden won Iowa, but really, you know. Only two thirds of his supporters really thought really thought of him as their first choice. Right. The other third, he was you know he was the backup option, right? right? So if if you're if it you're the narrative, if you're a candidate yeah. further down, I, I presume that I'm going to make the assumption that Iowa caucus voters are relatively informed about the system. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. 
does does the fact that they're reporting those first choice votes change the strategy of a person going to vote to say normally if this was the old system i might just go to biden to begin with because i figure i'm going to end up there anyhow where it's like well if they're going to count that first vote actually i would like to, to i mean yeah. I, well, i'd we like get to something. make a statement and vote yeah. for exactly. tulsi gabbard first it, exactly. could, it could slightly yeah i think it could slightly incentivize some people who might say like i want to make sure biden gets 15 percent on the first round but you might say instead well you know what i really like tulsi or i really like michael bennett right i mean maybe there's some people out there who like michael okay. um and i'm gonna go go caucus for that person sure yeah, could happen. It's a good point. Which you know, for Iowa, they they really prize how you know their their position in the primary yeah. um, the primary season as being the first because they get to sort of yep. shape the narrative, and in some sense, they are op- overrepresented, right? Yep. Um, what what and the only reason they are is because of the narrative power that comes yep. out of Iowa, and I think reporting these earlier numbers could potentially muddy that narrative and make Iowa to some extent less important than it has sure. been. We'll, we'll see how it plays out this time and perhaps the next time. Well, one last yep. process yep. question. So we were in the gym. I go to the Andrew Yang corner, whatever, right? Yang gang. Yang gang. Okay. So, and let's presume that, let's presume <laughs> we're not. like a thousand dollars a month. Right. I'm just saying. Let, let's, let's presume we're not going to get our 15%. <laughs> What Fair happens point. once the announcement's made yeah. that we need to go somewhere else? Like yeah. process-wise, is it just go somewhere else, or is there a discussion? There's a, there's a group hug first. Are there? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, like, are there people in the Yang gang to use your your uh, your term there? Um, are there people? That is where they call themselves, <laughs> right? But are there people there who are talking about like? Okay, well, where am I going to go? And do you try to bring people yeah. with you? Like, yeah. like, yeah. like yeah. It's, it's, it's very discursive. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's the whole idea is it's conversation. In fact, and the Biden and Warren people might both be coming over and explaining why you should know. Oh, so they can know. do that too. Yeah, I okay. think so. Okay. I think it's cross pretty much the room a, and persuade in any direction they you get a, want. They yeah. get a few uh, red rubber dodgeballs out. I mean, like, okay. it's fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why did we never do have another in gym class? Have yeah. another Bernie Brownie. <laughs> That's great. That slows everything down a little bit. <laughs> you feel mellow. You don't really care anymore. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to I want to pause it here that even though this is going to muddy the waters, and I agree that that actually might mute a little bit what I'm about to say to you, Matt. Um, there are certain scenarios coming out of Iowa that uh, are more or less effectual. For example. Yep. If Amy Klobuchar wins Iowa, which is unlikely, but if, unlikely. if she manages, manages to do that, that would really boost her campaign. Yep. More so than it would boost the campaign of someone like Bernie or Biden, who are kind of the frontrunners who are sort of ex- – one of them is expected to win Iowa. Yeah. Right? right. On the other hand, if Klobuchar finishes fifth, if she's behind all four of the the main frontrunners, is that – just doom for her campaign. Yeah, she's yeah. toast. I mean, her yeah. whole theory of the case was that she could win Iowa um, to prove her viability, and yeah. then she would build on that success. Um, yeah. And the little reason she really has a shot at Iowa is because of you know her proximity to the state. Right? Yeah, I think she has to. So, so but ideally, she's when, of the pack at on the, the very numbers. least, she has to exceed expectations. Which I think, at least, I mean, I, I just don't see how she, why she would continue if she doesn't finish at least top three. And realistically, she probably needs so to is win. third so, the magic number for her. You feel like like I don't think it's particularly magic. No, no, I but mean, I mean, to, I think to, she's to dead feel like she, she can win, continue. Probably. Like like yeah. that's they have to. That's the basement for them. Is it fair to say anybody who finishes fourth or fifth is going to have a freakout, and at the campaign level? Yeah, some of them more than others. I think. I mean, I feel like if Biden finishes fifth, that's like a crisis. 
Yeah, a bit. I mean, yeah. Biden's a weird case, right? Because Biden for sure will hang in there till <clears throat> South Carolina because he, as long as he keeps his African-American base, which right now he has pretty a pretty yep. solid number behind him there, right? Um, he is going to be very well positioned in South Carolina and very well positioned in the Southern states on Super Tuesday. Yep. Um, so I think fifth is probably the... I, I guess if I had to classify them, I would say it's the least of a crisis for Biden. It's still bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's bad for anyone if you finish fifth when you've been trying to win. Um, yep. But mm-hmm. um, it's maybe a little less bad for him than for the other four. Yeah, I, th- I th- that's my, my. I think anybody who finishes in the top three can shrug their shoulders and say, "On to New Hampshire." Yeah, fourth and fifth are going to have some real questions to answer. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, I, I just think like Klobuchar, she's got a. Pull something out of them. Yeah. Like a first or maybe a strong second looks really good for her. Anything le- less than that, yeah. it's just, It also depends know, on your spread. Like, if, let's just say the first blows it out and then yeah. three, four, two, three, right. and four are right. closely bunched. Yeah. That could maybe allow the fourth yeah. place person to. Um, yeah. You were almost hang on. in second, but but for a few people, you would be yeah, in second. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Okay, fair right. enough. Yeah. Well, which is possible because, I mean, mm-hmm. Sanders, Buttigieg and Warren are all bunched up right now in the polls and Biden is significantly ahead of all three of them. Yeah. So. And the other weird the other weird thing we should throw in there, right, that's making all this kind of last push to Iowa or 13 days out now, right, or something like that. Um, or is it 12, 12, 12 days out? But, you know, we're, you know, the other thing that's making this really weird is the impeachment, right? I mean, because, sure. you know, all of a sudden three of these people, right, three of these mm-hmm. top five – um, or needing to be back in Washington. Um, you don't want to be, you know, derelicting your duty, right? When the president of the United States is being impeached and tried in the Senate, right? And you're a supporter of said impeachment. Um, but that's creating a really tricky dynamic for Klobuchar, Warren, and Sanders, right? My because, hypothesis would be this puts more pressure on their ground games. Yeah, it really does. Uh, because if they're not able yeah. to be there to draw right. crowds, it's about their surrogates. It's about the other right. people who are hitting the 99 counties in Iowa yep. and getting people yep. to show up. But mm-hmm. but wouldn't it also? I mean, it's not like they're gone for no reason. Like like it's a pretty mm-hmm. at least it's a high profile yeah. reason to be yeah. gone. Sure, you yeah. know. So it is. so if you're a, if you're a potential Iowa voter, you right. wouldn't be like, well, why are they not here? It's like there's a clear like that's not even a question. There's a clear reason why. Oh, yeah, you wouldn't right, be there. absolutely. But if you're still like on the fence, right? Sure. It's like you might get to hear Biden give you a pitch. You might get to hear Buttigieg give you a pitch. You're not going to hear those three as much. And, sure. And could that matter at the margins? I think it could, but. We'll see. Yep. All right. So um, we kind of verged into this a little bit, but after Iowa, we've got uh, New Hampshire mm-hmm. and then South Carolina and Nevada, mm-hmm. and then we're cruising into Super Tuesday. Yeah. So with those as kind of the inflection points, what are some of the likely pa- – so, or what do you think are some mm-hmm. of the likely pathways that we might find ourselves in. I'm actually be a little bit prognosticative here. What do you think are some likely pathways that we might Im- might emerge out of these next few states? I mean, Sanders is the favorite for New Hampshire, obviously, because mm-hmm. um, he's from Vermont, right? And yep. he's done well there. His sort of brand of politics does very well in that area. So he's um, currently um, forecast to win in the polls. Um, so mm-hmm. that should not be a surprise to anyone. Okay. Conversely, that, if he doesn't does that do, lessen the impact of New Hampshire this year? Maybe. I mean, because you have an expectations game thing going. If, if you know, Sanders wins right. he won handily, last time. but not hugely, yeah. 
yeah. and everyone else is kind of bunched up, I don't know if it's going to matter a whole lot. It'll show that Sanders is still, you know, a viable force. Um, and if Sanders know. loses New Hampshire, it's disaster. Oh, it, it's huge. It's he's, he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, unless he's won Iowa, right? In which case, that would be kind yeah, of weird. Yeah, which would be really weird. But if he if he loses, he probably needs Iowa or New Hampshire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that narrative gets really hard for him because South Carolina is not great for him. Um, and, I mean, Nevada he could win. But Nevada never seems to have as much of an impact on people's way of thinking about it. It just never seems to be as big a story as the other three. I'm not really quite sure why, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe by that point, our narrative's already set. Maybe. I don't know. It's just kind of weird. It's like, it feels like the the big three are Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and then you have Super Tuesday. And Nevada got themselves in there, but it just doesn't seem to matter as much. I don't know. Um, sorry, Nevada. Nothing personal. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me ask a pathway question here. Yeah. Let's say hypothetically... Either Buttigieg or Warren comes out of comes from behind and wins Iowa. Yeah, that'd be big. Okay, for both of them. And let's say Sanders wins New Hampshire and Biden wins South Carolina, and we just punt on Nevada. So yeah. we we uh, we've got three different okay. winners, three different states. What's the narrative likely to be, um, prior to Super Tuesday? I mean, Super Tuesday becomes big. I think mm-hmm. it, it. I mean, it's already big, but it's, it becomes even bigger. Um. I think, you know, the narrative is it's kind of wide open. I think you get Michael Bloomberg getting another look. I think you're going to get some stories about that because his whole his whole theory of the case is you don't really have a good candidate. You haven't got somebody to unite behind. Um, and he starts throwing even more money, if that's possible, right, into advertising. And we see if it makes a difference. Um, I still think Biden, if, as long as his African-American base holds with him, is going to be very well positioned to do well on Super Tuesday. Um, and, yeah, I, I still think that makes it very, Bloomberg's sort of idea very problematic. But Let me give you a different scenario then. Let's say Biden wins Iowa, finishes a close second in New Hampshire to Sanders, and wins South Carolina handily. Are we starting to coalesce around a frontrunner? I think so. Probably. I mean, because at that point, Klobuchar's out. Or functionally out, mm-hmm. Warren's dead in the water, and a, and a Biden and Bloomberg's case is is that Biden's not able to do this, but people clearly don't agree with him. Um, and then it's Biden and Sanders, and I just don't see Sanders winning a like San, Sanders' way of to, path to victory to me is this needs to be a multi-person fight for quite a while, yeah. um, and he picks off a, a fair number of victories in the thirty percent, twenty-five to thirty percent range, mm-hmm. um, and eventually the party sort of snarlingly gets behind him, right? A la Donald Trump twenty sixteen, right? Right. Um, or that's Rom- how he or Romney for the Republicans, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 So. Um, we don't really like this guy a right, whole lot, but, but he seems to be the most all yeah, around. And the people candidate. want him. Yeah, and you know, I, I he's think got more charisma or something. I think there's a couple things to keep in mind um, as the narrative sort of ebbs and flows. the The first thing is that um, endorsements from party elites actually do matter. Hmm. If you look at endorsements um, since basically 1980, um, of sort of party elites, these are other party officials um, in government. Um, some of them are elected. If you look at sort of the endorsement race, the person who wins the most endorsements um, from their party going into Iowa has always won the nomination of their party. Mm. Um, And right now, Biden is far and away ahead of everyone else. Um, Warren is so 
actually, if you look at the the 538, they have an endorsement tracker. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Biden clocks in at 224 points of endorsement, and they have yeah. a, a rubric for that. The closest is Warren <laughs> with 81%, and she's even lower in the polls than Sanders is right now. So, yeah. so I think you have to think of the importance of – and these endorsements are important because they stand in for the support – that are not only among party elites, but the resources that they have that they can bring to bear in elections, right? Money in campaigns, um, ground game, uh, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Organizations, um, you know, within, you know, every single county within a state, right? Mm -hmm. That's what these endorsements sort of represent. Um, and Biden has a huge advantage of that um, going in. And I think that's that's one thing. That and they're reasonably correlated with fundraising numbers, too. Well, right. And he's done he's done pretty well on that score as well. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to note is that um, if you look at polling and what um, a lot of sort of rank and file Democrats want in a candidate is they just want someone to be Trump. Right. Yeah. Um, and. So electability, whatever the heck that means, electability is yeah. the number one priority. Um, and there's this sense that, well, I might actually prefer um, the the policies of a Bernie Sanders. I like his brand of populism better. Or I think Warren right. is smarter and more capable. Right. Um, but I also know that these two are going to be perceived as being too far left for the rank and file. And so I'm going to not vote my number one preference. I'm going to vote for Biden. Um, because I just simply want Trump out of office, and I'd rather have a Biden in office than Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's a, the calculus a lot of rank-and-file Democrats are going to be making um, in the next three to four months. And I think that's not going to change regardless of what the narrative is out of Iowa. If, if anything, if, if, if Biden does well in Iowa and comes mm-hmm. in, in second in New Hampshire, yeah. that just reinforces the idea that, hey, he's electable. He can mm-hmm. win this yep. thing, um, and that's going to further short that that's going to lead to a boost in the number of endorsements. That's going to lead to a boost in, um, in in his support, which is a little bit like what happened in say two thousand four, right, with John Kerry, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. the most inspiring person ever, right? But um, you start getting the sense like maybe Howard Dean is just too far out there, right? Yeah. Um, and or or for the Republicans, right? Say in in two thousand eight with McCain, right, as sort of the safe choice, or Romney. Um, as the safer choice over, say, a Gingrich, right, or a Huckabee mm-hmm. in 08, right? So, I mean, I think those, you know, you could see that kind of calculation um, coming through. The other thing is, like, in 538's point this out, too. I mean, like, electability is a perception, right? And so mm-hmm. as you start winning primaries, right, people's perception of your electability also goes up. So, yep. so you know, when people think that Bernie or, you know, Warren have electability problems, I mean, and that's, that's there's probably something there. But on the other hand, that could easily go away for them if, say, Bernie wins Iowa and New Hampshire and people start saying, well, maybe he is electable, right? Um, it doesn't actually change how the moderates perceive them, but it might change how people perceive that issue. Um, so that the, that's one that can the Sanders swing. campaign is making a big deal out of the fact that yep. just yesterday a poll was released that showed that he was has the best polling from a head to head matchup at Trump at this yeah. point. Yeah. So that's and that's good news for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, guys, uh, hopefully that helps people understand Iowa a little bit better, the effects of Iowa and what's likely to happen next. Uh, do you want to talk about the thing that I really don't want to talk about or should we save that? Let's, for a future let's, let's punt it. And now, and we'll leave people wondering. Okay, you know, which means you have thing? to come back to the feed. And oh, watch. we'll be back. All right, Kukum and I won't let uh, it die. To my, to my, to my significant <laughs> derision, there's a topic that uh, we will be talking about in a future podcast oh. episode. All right, uh, thanks so much, guys. Uh, anything that people should be looking at to keep themselves up on politics in an efficient way uh, in these coming weeks and months. 
efficient. Ooh, well, I was just going to say, like, if you're going to recommend one news source, data source, way of kind of following the primaries, what's what's something you'd recommend? My my go-tos are always real clear politics. They aggregate a lot of news sources. You can just even scan headlines and get a sense of, like, what is the right saying? What is the left saying? I don't read all those, but um, just kind of take a look. They aggregate polling data. So if you want to know where the polls are, um, they'll have that there. And then 538 has some really nice trackers of, you know, sort of like, what does the president's approval look like? What are the, you know, polling numbers looking like? Um, they are usually on top of big political stories. Um, those are my two go-to. Yeah, if you're a data or stats junkie, um, go to 538. Yeah, okay. which I'm not really, but they, they make or it understandable even for those of us <laughs> who are more qualitatively minded. So, I also like that they're, despite some of the, some of the knocks they've gotten against them, uh, they do a good job contextualizing yeah. what pr- probabilistic decisions are. Exactly. Yeah. They do. I think that's nice. They really do. And they're, and I think they're pretty fair. I mean, like, I think they're pretty focused on the data. So they, yeah. they, you know, they, they try to not get too political as they talk about politics, right? I mean, which is nice. I'll throw one other one in there. If you want to hear a few more political scientists digest some of this mm-hmm. data and talk about it as political scientists, the Monkey Cage blog mm-hmm. um, at the New York Times is a is a nice uh, resource mm-hmm. to check out as well. So, thanks, friends. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, you've been listening to Election Shock Therapy. You can always get a hold of us, and some of you have to great amusement and to great effect, uh, at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And uh, just keep it in uh, – there's a lot of great podcasts on this channel. Uh, Sam, what else we got coming up this week? Uh, we just dropped a podcast with um, <clears throat> two-time Pro Bowler, Super Bowl champion Greg Ooh. Jennings uh, on the That's 252. Bookish at Bethel is coming out every week, and we have a really great tweet victory coming out tomorrow. We usually don't record those ahead of time, but Annie's out of town tomorrow, so we recorded today, and I'm I'm excited for uh, for y'all to check this one out. And as we move clo- more and more into the primary season, you can expect to hear uh, more frequent drops of election shock therapy as well. Yeah. Thanks, guys, and go Royals. Go Royals.